conclude the scripture reading, Exodus 30, verses 17 through 38, and hear the word of God. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall also make a laver of bronze, with its base also of bronze for washing. You shall put it between the tabernacle of meeting and the altar. You shall put water in it, for Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and their feet in water from it when they go into the tabernacle of meeting or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn an offering made by fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water lest they die. So they shall wash their hands and their feet lest they die. And it shall be a statute forever to them, to him and his descendants throughout their generations. Moreover, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Also take for yourself quality spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, Half uh, as much sweet smelling cinnamon, 250 shekels, 250 shekels of sweet smelling cane, 500 shekels of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary and a hint of olive oil. And you shall make from these a holy anointing oil, an anointment compounded according to the art of the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil. With it, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of the testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils and the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils and the laver and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whatever touches them must be holy and you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them that they may minister, minister to me as priests. And you shall speak to the children of Israel saying this shall be a holy anointing oil to me throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on man's flesh, nor shall uh, nor shall you make any other like it according to its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. And the Lord said to Moses, Take sweet spices... Uh, I'm not sure how to say that... Uh, Stat, uh, stat, not sure. <laughs> uh, I don't know how to say any of those. Galbanum and pure frankincense with these sweet spices. There shall be equal amounts of each. You shall make of these an incense, a compound according to the art of the perfumer, salted, pure and holy. And you shall beat some of it very fine and put some of it before the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. But as for you, the incense which you shall make, you shall... Uh, not make any for yourselves according to its composition. It shall be to you holy for the Lord. Whoever makes any uh, like it to smell it, he shall be cut off from his people. And let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, uh, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for, um, well, Lord, even the words we can't read aloud. It's all your word. And uh, and there is, well, they're all precious to us, all of them. And, uh, and, and the words of the Old Testament tabernacle. Well, we might look at this and say, what value does that have to us? Of course, if we didn't have Hebrews, maybe we could say that. But with Hebrews, it's just impossible still to say that. Uh, but, but, but there's also value in looking at it from the, the Old Testament believer. And, and to just realize that as he beheld these things, he, he saw Christ. He saw the new covenant. He saw grace, real grace ministered to him. And he was really able to worship God in this way. And so, Father, we pray not just from the standpoint of Christ and Hebrews, but even from the faith of the Old Testament saints and the priests that we might find value and benefit from these things. And uh, to that end, O God, we come under this text and pray that it would minister grace to us. 
In Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're, we're still considering and, and now concluding the ministry of the priests. Having seen in the last chapter what his daily ministry consisted of, namely uh, these daily burnt offerings, and then especially what was the emphasis of that text uh, and of the sermon, the rich promises that attach themselves to God's ordinances under the Old Covenant, which likewise attach themselves to his ordinances under the New Covenant. And uh, all four of those promises, as you remember, had to do with the fact that God was saying, I will meet with you. I will meet with you. The meeting place where the believer meets with God in the ordinances. And we come now, having seen that, uh, to a further consideration of the daily ministrations of the priests, uh, as well as uh, some occasional ones. And we can look at these under five simple headings, since there are five instructions. In fact, uh, the, the, the sermon title is Various Instructions Concerning the Priesthood. Well, there's five. Five instructions. And in doing so, I want to consider each five of these points under three further headings, since this is the easiest and the best way to understand the ceremonial law. And I've been doing this the whole time. Uh, and that is simply to look first at the law itself, and then to see what was signified thereby, what was the symbolism and the imagery and the spiritual truth that God was conveying. And then third, we couldn't stop at number two, but we don't want to rush to number three to see the typology number three that was present, uh, bringing the, the reality signified under the old covenant, real grace that was ministered to the point of fullness and realization under the new covenant through Christ's priesthood. Uh, and so the ceremonial law always functioned that way. You have to understand the law. You have to understand its spiritual significance. And then you have to look at, at it in terms of its typology. And as Kyle and Dillich say with this, the directions concerning the sanctuary are brought to a close. And we'll come to a new stage in Exodus following that. And the first thing that we notice, and this was the most significant of, uh, of the five and I think the one which is most packed uh, with meaning, uh, in fact, I know it is, and that is the altar of incense, verses 1 through 10. Uh, and looking just simply at the law itself, number one, uh, we see instructions uh, for making the altar, verses 1 through 5. Notice what I just called it, by the way, an altar. Notice that it resembled the altar in the court. It even had horns on it. It was an altar. It tells us the place of the altar just before the veil that uh, that concealed the Ark of the Testimony. It is classified, verses 7 and 8, as a daily offering. There are prohibitions attached to it, verse 9. Let me see. You shall not offer strange incense. That's the phrase I was looking for. No strange incense, only that which I appointed. And then there was also to be a, day, a yearly atonement on the Day of Atonement upon that altar. And so what was the significance? I've just told you five things about it. The making, the place, the daily offering, the prohibition, and the atonement. There was significance in each of these points. Uh, spiritual truths that God was indicating to the people. Just as we find, uh, for instance, uh, in the Lord's Supper. That's always the best parallel, by the way, when you're thinking of the ceremonial law and how it ministered grace to the people. Uh, symbolically, it's the Lord's Supper and baptism, obviously, the sacraments. These were sacraments. 
I don't think there's any question about that. In other words, God ministering grace to the people pictorially through an act. So there was an altar, number one. That's the first point of significance. And that it resembled the altar of the court upon which offerings were made. And so what we see is that the the altar of incense, it was called an altar to burn incense on. It becomes and was a place of sacrifice, as it were. A place of offering unto the Lord. And if you remember, that is the ministry of the priest, I said last time. To, to act as a priest is to offer. Which made the incense itself an offering and even a sacrifice to the Lord. A sacrifice of praise. Number two, the placement of the altar, verse six, is incredibly significant. Just before the veil. And in reality... It was offered. Uh, it was offered before or to the 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 ark or the mercy seat. That's why the Lord indicates that it shall be put. He says before the veil that is before the ark of testimony, before the mercy seat that is over the testimony, where I will meet with you. In other words, the Lord is indicating not the distance but the proximity. That the incense was offered unto uh, and in the direction of the ark. It, it, it became, uh, therefore, the incense just at the veil or the threshold of the most holy place. It became itself a meeting place between the offerer and God. I will meet with you. God was directing the offer thereby through the offering of incense. And I'm going to tell you what incense indicates. But through the offering of incense to direct his offering and even to direct his gaze within the veil, though they stood outside it. Matthew Henry says, for though he that ministered at the altar could not see the mercy seat, yet he must look towards it and direct his incense that way to teach us that though we cannot with our bodily eyes see the throne of grace, yet we must in prayer by faith set ourselves before it to direct our prayer, and look up. Number three, we see, as I said, that they were classified as daily offerings. And we ought to consider the precise nature of these daily offerings, uh, as with all the offerings. They were connected with the daily burnt offerings just considered in the prior text. And so they resembled them. They resembled them as a sweet aroma unto the Lord. They resembled them as those which were offered daily. They resembled them in what they signified, namely a life of constant devotion to God, offered daily morning and evening. But clearly, uh, there was something more as well. These were not burnt offerings. They were something more and something different. What was represented specifically in the life of devotion symbolized in the burnt offering was prayer. Prayer. Incense and prayer are closely connected in Scripture frequently. Uh, and if you think of the ministry just outside the veil, but directed within the veil, you begin to make sense of it. And Matthew Henry himself said that, didn't he? Yet we must in prayer by faith set ourselves before it, that is before the veil, and direct our prayer and look up. Though we are uh, like the priests of old, though we stand outside of heaven even now, yet we direct our gaze within. How? Through prayer. And we also see here 
its precise relation it bore to the daily burnt offerings. This is what Kyle and Dillich say. They say that the incense offering was not only a spiritualizing of the burnt offering, but a completion of that offering also. What about the prohibition? Do not offer strange incense, God says. Well, the prohibition makes it clear, uh, as with all of the prohibitions, uh, to the priest specifically, the reverence which must daily attach itself to their ministry and to ours. In other words, seeing the, uh, the incense as uh, an act of praying or as a symbol of prayer, the reverence symbolically, the prohibition symbolically indicates the reverence that we must have as we approach God in prayer. There is a warning which attaches itself, in other words, to prayer, the ministry of prayer. Strange incense or unlawful prayers or unscriptural prayers must be abhorred by us. Only that which God appoints is that which he approves. And yes, this applies to prayer as well. And so we must always seek to uh, to seek to seek him in that way which he approves. Again, the Lord is indicating and instilling in the people, the Old Testament worshiping community, a sense of his holiness and the holiness of worship. That's the point I want to keep underlining. It is to come in contact with the God who is holy and who dwells in the sanctuary of his own holiness. But finally, we see the connection of the atonement with the daily incense, which happened once a year. Which indicated that without atonement, the prayers of incense would not be accepted. We approach God on the basis of an offering, of a, of a, of a prior offering or a prior sacrifice, a sin offering. And apart from that, our prayers, well, they cease to enter within the veil, as it were. Or they, they fail to do so, always. But on the basis of a sin offering, and an act of atonement which God accepts, suddenly we find that our prayers are accepted and we are invited to pray before the throne. But uh, another point of, uh, of significance in, in, the, in the continual repetition of atonement, as Hebrews highlights, is that this also served as a reminder, a constant reminder to the Old Testament saints, that the priests who ministered on behalf of the people, were themselves still sinners, standing in need of atonement yearly, even as they ministered before the veil. And that, therefore, the ministry they performed was imperfect and could never succeed in taking away sins fully. It was an imperfect ministry. And it, it, it cried out for a perfect atonement that would once and forever take away sin so that our prayers would be offered up continually and uh, as, as a sweet and pleasing aroma of delight to the Lord, which require no further atonement. You see, that's exactly what we have in the New Testament, isn't it? That's what we have in Jesus Christ. And so coming now to the point of typology. So we think of what the incense indicates typologically looking forward to what we now enjoy. Well, there's two points to be made here. Two points of significance. The incense representing before the mercy seat or going, uh, going in the direction of the mercy seat. It refers to Christ's daily intercession. Spoken of in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 25 through 27, Christ daily ministering before the throne of grace. Uh, also, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 14, 23 through 25. I won't read them, but, but uh, they're speaking of Christ's ministry in the presence of God for us. 
And it is a continual and a constant ministry on behalf of believers, which, which goes up forever on the basis of his once-for-all sacrifice. He doesn't look for another act of sacrifice. He's made one that bears no repeating. His ministry in the true sanctuary is constant. It is uninterrupted. And as, as incense which goes up before, this is just imagery, obviously, but as incense which goes before the throne, it is met by the Father with continual acceptance and delight. It is a sweet and a pleasing aroma. It is a source of pleasure to the Father. He loves the ministry of the Son, and so he loves those whom the Son represents and whom he bears on his breast. But incense is also, typologically, and I've already begun to indicate this, but let me say so now explicitly, the prayer of the saints. And this is something we find, for instance, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. The, 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 the incense that goes into heaven constantly, and it fills the courts of heaven, which is the prayers of the saints. But using the imagery of the incense and the ministry of the priests which we carry on in a lesser sense, we see that prayer for the saints today, and even calling you saints, you see, I'm already using this language. It's a holy work. Prayer is the constant work of the saints, morning and evening. Their continual work. Never do the saints conclude from the sacrifice made on their behalf that there is no need to pray. Rather, to the contrary, they make the sacrifice the basis of their prayers, always. They go to God now as those who are reconciled and accepted, and thus their prayers are as well, realizing that as Christ has gone before them, so they are met by acceptance and delight constantly. Their prayers, again, are like a pleasing aroma, which uh, fill the courts of heaven with a pleasing and a delightful smell. And thus we as saints, again, are encouraged to pray always, directing our prayers ever towards the mercy seat. Not afraid that we will be turned away, but full of expectation of what it is our prayers are accomplishing and the acceptance they meet. So you have the altar of incense. That, as I say, is the first big one. And it, it, it is a, a wonderful picture of the ministry of Christ, the ministry of the saints. But then you have the atonement money or the ransom money in verses 11 through 16. Uh, dealing first with the law or the instructions, you have uh, here what was, if you remember, you, you probably don't, uh, but I, I only say that because I was surprised when I realized this this week, but this was the tribute money that Jesus was asked to give uh, in Matthew chapter 17, verse 24. It was, uh, in those days, what was called a temple tax, although there was no temple now. It was still the tabernacle. And uh, it was just something that people had to pay yearly in order to uh, supply the maintenance or pay for the maintenance of the tabernacle, verse uh, 16, and later uh, the temple. It, you shall appoint it, he says, for the service of the tabernacle of meeting. Someone had to pay for the sacrifices, for instance, and all of uh, the provisions. And what we find, uh, verses 14 and 15, is that everybody was to make their contribution, rich and poor alike. 
Well, what was the significance of this? The significance was manifold. It was seen in the equal contribution of the rich and the poor. It was seen as it was called explicitly, once again, we ought to be comfortable and familiar with this language by now, but an offering to the Lord. We keep noticing that as the central idea. Here the people are making their contribution. They are offering something to God that he is asking for them or from them. Something that the people give to him as a gift or a tribute. And an offering might and is scripturally called a gift to the Lord. Something significantly, if you think of, again, it being money in this case, something that invested the people themselves uh, directly in the work of the tabernacle and the ministry of the priests. And because all alike stood in equal need of this, there was an equality of gifts. In this equality, we see the absence of partiality, just as we saw recently in Hebrews. That God is no respecter of persons. All men stand alike. He has no favorites. He doesn't show favoritism, I should say, in the application of his justice. But you might say, how was that fair? How is that equality that the rich and the poor should give us the same amount? In other words, why was it fair or how was it fair that the poor should give the same as the rich? That doesn't seem right. But what you should really say, that's very much a modern question, by the way. What you should say instead is, or what you should see, rather, is that this was a way of keeping the rich from paying more. And thus garnering a greater share and interest in the priesthood. God was saying to the rich, you cannot give more just because you have more. You cannot have a greater share in the priesthood. As for instance, you find, I I would say the Catholic Church, but let's be honest. It goes well beyond the Catholic Church. The the churches with the greater donors often have a greater part. uh, Those people have a greater part and a greater share of honor in the churches. Such a thing is abhorrent to God explicitly from James chapter 2. And it was abhorrent to God from the standpoint of the Old Testament. Favoritism shown to the poor. God is saying rich and poor are to give alike the same and to have an equal interest in the ministry of the priesthood. And so it always is. But this idea of equality or biblical equality, equality is not a bad word. It's become a bad word uh, to so many of us, but it isn't a bad word. It's a biblical concept. It's something that we ought to consider. We ought to, uh, as, I was, as I was reflecting on this in the prayer and, and, and contemplating this thought before the Lord, we should stop listening to the world. The world doesn't know what this means. The world doesn't know what any of these biblical concepts mean. We ought to take the lead on what equality means. Equality today means that everyone is brought down to the same level. And so you have to take those who have advanced and somehow bring them down so everyone stands on the same level. But biblical equality doesn't try to do anything. It is not an ideal or a goal. It doesn't bring down anyone. It simply looks upon all alike and says, you are all sinners. The equality, therefore, that the Bible speaks of is an equality of need. That all men alike, it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter how much money you have or whether you're a Jew or a Greek, all men alike stand in equal need of the grace which God 
is offering to man as sinners. Every man stands in need of the ministry that is of the priesthood. And in this, this ministry, the priestly ministry, God shows no favoritism to rich or poor. This is the same point that we find in the New Testament when Paul says in several places that there's no Jew or Greek, uh, nor male, nor female, nor uh, slave, free, rich, poor. He's not actually suggesting that these distinctions do not exist, since obviously at other points he does. Uh, He asserts the difference many times between a man and a woman, for instance. But what he's saying when he says that is precisely what God is saying here. That from the standpoint of salvation on the one hand, or negatively from the standpoint of our need of salvation as sinners, these distinctions amount to nothing. Absolutely nothing. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You cannot buy salvation. When God says in Deuteronomy that uh, there's no partiality with God, what's the next thing he says? The Lord does not take a bribe. He cannot be bought off. Nor is he impressed with whatever worldly distinctions you might possess. These things have no bearing whatsoever from the standpoint of salvation. And that's what God is saying here. What he's indicating through uh, the requirement of an equal gift. And that especially becomes clear when he speaks of it as a ransom money in one place or atonement money in another. Here was money which, again, invested them in the priesthood. It was their contribution to this whole arrangement, to the sacrifices which, uh, which occurred there. And so the money became for them an atonement for their souls. Not in that they bought atonement, but that in, they, in that they made atonement possible by their contributions. They were buying as it were, the stuff of atonement. They were contributing to make the ministry possible by which atonement occurred. This is what Matthew Henry says. He says, money indeed cannot make atonement for the soul, but it may be used for the maintenance of the gospel by which atonement is made. It was in this sense that it was called a ransom money for their souls. If they didn't give the offering, what uh, what did they care if... Atonement was made. But by giving their offering, you see, they were saying that their souls depended upon that which the money bought. The ministry of the priests. What about the typology? Well, there's something to be said here as well, thinking of uh, the new covenant relation to this truth, which brings us back to Matthew chapter 17. Uh, And let me actually read what occurs there now. Matthew chapter 17, let's see. There it is. Uh, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Verse 24. He said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipating him said, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes from their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. Now, I'll just stop there because Jesus does agree to pay the tax in order not to give an offense. But do you realize what Jesus is saying there? He's saying that the sons of the new covenant are free and they have no need any longer to pay the temple tax. And so the day would come when the fullness of the reality that was signified here comes to pass, namely an atonement for their souls through the sacrifices that they were purchasing. That the atonement money would no longer need to be rendered. 
and the temple itself would be done away with. And yet we could equally uh, and, and uh, necessarily add the fact that the principle itself still holds. If you think of the fact uh, that the New Covenant and the New Testament says that the sons are free, yes, but throughout the New Testament it also uh, continues to affirm the principle that those who benefit from the ministry of the church ought to be invested in that work. Those who are, sit under the preaching uh, and the ministry of the church ought to make their contribution. Very often we find the New Testament speaking in this way. So the principle still holds even in the New Covenant, though we wouldn't call it atonement money, would we? But we still make our contribution. Number three, the brazen laver, verses uh, 17 through 21. Here was a basin that was to be made and filled with fresh water daily, placed between the altar and the tent. It was, uh, we read, for washing explicitly uh, the hands and the feet of the priests as they went into the tent or to the altar to sacrifice. With the strong warning that he who ministers before the Lord with unclean hands or unclean feet is unfit to do so, and he will surely die. And so again, the Lord is indicating uh, the holiness and the reverence of worship uh, on the part of the worshiper uh, through an outward ceremony of cleansing. And the significance was this. I I think uh, it is captured in two other places in Scripture. Uh, If you think of what David says, for instance, in uh, Psalm 24, verses 3 and 4. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? Did you ever think that was a passage about the priesthood? Well, verse 4, he says, He that has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul into vanity, nor sworn deceitfully, he shall receive the blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. He who has clean hands. Also, we remember what Jesus said about Peter. John chapter 13, verse 9. Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus had washed his feet. He said, why don't you wash more? Jesus said unto him, he that is washed need not to wash his feet, but is clean. And you are clean, but not all. And so what we realize about the priesthood here symbolically is that though they had been cleansed ceremonial in their consecration or their ordination service, Like Peter, they still stood in need of a daily lesser cleaning. They were clean, but not all, as Jesus says. Their persons were cleansed, but their hands were still unclean. For for sin still clung to their persons and to the people as well. Thus the need for daily washing. The typology, in this case, resembles the symbolism. It differs little. James chapter 4, verse 8 Speaking again of our priestly ministry, speaking to believers in general, draw nigh to God and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. As you draw near to God, daily is your constant work. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. You see, that's what God was indicating to the priest. And he's still indicating it even now. What does it mean? It means that as we are a daily Seeking to draw near to God, as near as we possibly can. 
we believers are, ought to renew our repentance daily as we approach God. Not to actually wash our hands, to wash the inner man of the heart through repentance. And also, as Jesus indicates in the Lord's Prayer, daily to seek forgiveness in our prayers. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And this is because, as Jesus says in John 13, we are clean, but not all, not completely. Our hands are still dirty as sinners. But notice in speaking of the typology, I do not speak of Christ's washing since I am not aware of any, but rather of the believers. And typology can work like that sometimes. Sometimes the typology is as a type of the believer. In fact, very often it is. But coming now to the fourth uh, instruction, which concerned the anointing oil, verses 22 through 33. Uh, the, the instructions, as with the incense, uh, as the final point, concerned merely its making and its use. Uh, with uh, in, the, in the case of the incense with, with uh, ingredients, I, I didn't even know what they were. You know, it, it's interesting when you're reading it, you think you've got it uh, to yourself, but then you try to read it aloud and you don't have a chance. But uh, don't tell me how to pronounce it. I can figure it out later on my own. Uh, some, of, some of you like to do that. Well, what was the significance? The significance was very clearly as anointing oil to make holy, to make holy. The Lord is saying, I want you to make it just like this, but don't get lost in the details. The point is, here was an anointing oil. The oil itself, you notice, was called holy. And by applying the oil, whatever it touched became holy as a result. And so the furniture of the temple was consecrated for holy use. And the priests were able to minister to God as priests. And again, we notice as a result of this in the old covenant priesthood, what is the effect of sin? That holiness, where sin reigns, is not intrinsic. Consecration is something that is external, not internal. It must come from without and be put on. We must be anointed with oil. Uh, Psalm 103. Not 103. I don't remember. Uh, When brothers dwell in unity, whatever psalm that is. But what we notice about the oil is that God is saying, here is something which surely accomplishes its purpose. As God calls it holy, so it is. So it becomes that which sanctifies and that which separates. Whether it be in the old covenant, the holy anointing oil, or in the new covenant, the waters of baptism, or the bread and the cup of the Lord's Supper, which we are warned in both covenants never to profane and always to regard as holy. Why? Because it is the Lord who has appointed these things, indifferent and insignificant in themselves though they are. Nevertheless, by the Lord's own appointment, they are consecrated for a holy use and they must be regarded by us as holy. We must be afraid to profane them, the Lord is saying in his prohibition. Whatever the Lord ordains must be sacred to us and it must be kept for sacred use. Do you realize that the Apostle Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and 1 Corinthians chapter 11? He says, you're profaning the table. You're you're coming to the table in an irreverent manner. You're making light with sacred things. And because of that, you're being judged. You ought not to do that. He sums it all up in one phrase in chapter 10. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? You notice the same warnings in a new covenant. 
Be careful how you worship. What you are dealing with, what you are handling is holy. And it is bringing you into contact with a God who is holy. Don't you realize that? With the typology of the anointing oil is seen in the fact that Christ the Messiah is as the Messiah, the anointed one. And his anointing is both intrinsic as one, uh, as the writer of the Hebrews says, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and made higher than the heavens, while also intrinsically in his humanity, passing through the waters of baptism and receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit uh, in uh, his resurrection, as well as in his baptism. So that whatever anointing these Old Testament priests had, It availed, again, to quote Hebrews, only for the cleansing of the flesh. It was an outward cleansing. But the anointing which Christ possesses abides and equips him to hold an eternal priesthood. And likewise, we're able to speak of such things for believers. 1 John 2, verse 20, that you as believers have an unction or an anointing. And that unction is the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are anointed with the Holy Spirit. And you are taught of him, John says. Likewise, ministers of a new covenant, like the priests of old, must have something of this heavenly blessing. They must possess a heavenly anointing, God's call and God's spirit, or else their ministry will have no effect. They cannot take up the work in their own strength. To possess or to to lack, rather, the anointing is to preach with no effect. It is to minister nothing. But then, uh, with regard to the incense, this is very similar to the prior point, the making and the use. And we've already considered the altar of the incense. Here the Lord, verses 34 through 38, is just saying, here's how I want you to make it. I want it to look like this. And you notice, you always notice this. This is not Old Testament only. This is always in the Bible. The Lord pays attention to the details. The details are always important to him. But the significance of it concerns uh, what he says in verse 35 and 37, namely its purity and its, its holiness. Again, do you notice the theme? What it is God is indicating to the people. What it is that they are meant to discover about God in the worship of God. The purity and the holiness of God. And added again was the prohibition that the one who profaned these things or mishandled them. What does the Lord say? Excommunicate him. Cut him off from the people. Again, don't tell me that is a severity in the old covenant that you don't find in the new. People who profane the covenant and the new covenant are to be cut off. They are to be excommunicated. What God ordains must be reverenced by his people always. And there are always strong warnings attached to those who do not. Whether with regard to these old covenant rites or with the preaching and the sacraments and prayer in the new covenant. We dare not, beloved, profane what the Lord ordains. As for the typology, I think I've said enough under the first heading. And so let me close, that that is with regard to the incense. Let me close uh, by summing up everything that I've been saying. We notice again and again how the Old Covenant uh, or Old Testament ceremonial law was filled always with rich spiritual truths, which uh, the Old Testament believer himself was equipped to understand. Each of them was a fitting picture or a symbol of something spiritual. 
Likewise, we understand through typology that the Old Testament priesthood is impossible to consider uh, without considering Christ and his priesthood and how uh, the, the priesthood always pointed to his. As well as we and ours, for we are priests too. We too have access to a sanctuary. We too offer the daily incense of prayer. But in this, we must first consider how the Old Testament saints enjoyed spiritual truths and grace through this ministry directly in their own time. It is true they looked by faith for Christ in these things. They looked for the typology, in other words. They beheld the typology. They looked forward to a better covenant and a better priesthood. But in this way, what they experienced in their own day was actual contact with the Savior. The, the rites and the ceremonies of the old covenant worship were effectual means of grace. And this is what points at the same time in another direction, namely that old covenant worship was a picture and a type of new covenant worship. There is so much that we can learn from old covenant worship. For here we too, in a new covenant, are saints who meet with God. And the promises and the warnings attach themselves to all that God ordains here as well. Do you notice I I said promises last time, but here I said promises and warnings. And the great thing that we ought to notice about the meeting place and the ordinances of the meeting place is always the holiness of God. And that is something, as I've said repeatedly, that you find every bit as much in the New Testament as you do in the Old Testament. What God appoints as holy must be regarded as holy by his people. God is saying, here are things which are holy. Regard them as such and be careful in your use of them. Do not come in with a careless and irreverent spirit, but rather come with reverence, come with awe. Come with a sense of the holiness of God as you deal with that which is holy. God will not be mocked. By the careless worship of a faithless people. And the warning you realize of excommunication still stands. He shall be cut off from his people. And so as we come, my appeal to you on the basis of Exodus chapter 30 is let us see ourselves like these priests. As those who make their contribution. As those who are sure to wash their hands and feet through daily repentance. And those who seek, who seek that anointing afresh from above. Or as the writer to the Hebrews says, I think uh, very fitly summarizing the whole idea. Seeing old covenant worship as a picture of new covenant worship. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Amen. And let us uh, stand now in response to God's word in praise uh, through the words of hymn number 550.